0: Racism in sports has kind of followed the same path and trajectory that racism in America has followed. It went from, you can't even have a seat at this table or you can't have, you can't even be near the table to now it's like you can kind of get a seat but yeah. the seat isn't gonna be you know, as comfortable. And it's like, you can have a seat but you're not gonna be the head of the
1: table. If these walls could talk, they tell you about my life. Let's get into the heart of the matter in black and white. No second chances no opportunities in sight cause dreams of escaping is boosting my appetite what's the american dream white picket fences couple kids couple bands is the american scheme if you're from where i'm from and they be burying teens and burying dreams really some embarrassing things institutional change generational things systematic oppression generational pain welcome to the show where we'll we break it down for you man because if we don't talk about it then these things will never change you claim to be an ally you're really feeling us but is equality worth that privilege you've given up? Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself. Is my equality worth that privilege you've given up? Welcome
2: to the Heart of the Matter in Black and White with Essence Revels and Becky Holloway. Yeah. Today we will be exploring the topic of racism in sports and highlighting the current and historical impact. Yeah. Okay, today we have our
3: first guest that are joining the heart of the matter in black and white. And Becky and I are extremely excited about this topic and about our guests. I think I uh, know them pretty well. One is my husband, Mr. Carl Revels, and the other is my brother, Shamsuddin Little. Nobody calls him Shamsuddin, we call him Pop. So I'm gonna allow both speakers to introduce themselves and talk about why they're excited to be here today. So, Carl.
4: Okay, so I'd like to thank you guys for the opportunity. As um, my beautiful wife just stated, my name is Carl Revels, and uh, I'm honored to be the first uh, guest on their show, along with Pop, my brother. And um, today we're going to be speaking about sports. So why, why me, right? Well, in our house, uh, it's all sports. <laughs> so um, I'm a sports nut. I, um, I'm also a Black history nut, and my wife knows that as well. So I felt like um, I could speak to some things. I may not be an expert, but I can speak to a lot of things because I've done a lot of research on a lot of these things. I've also coached for a number of years and uh, I just love and and am always around the game.
3: All right, Pop.
0: Hey guys, uh, thank you for having me, Essence and Becky. Uh, You know, like Carl said, it's an honor to uh, join the podcast today as as your first guest. Um, You know, my name is Pop Little. Um, I represent professional athletes. I'm a FIBA certified uh, sports agent. Um, I also was a division one athlete myself. I went to St. Francis University and competed in track and field. Um, So, you know, I I have a lot of inside knowledge on on kind of the the world of sports from, you know, both the collegiate level and uh, now a little bit uh, on the professional level.
2: Well, welcome to both of you. We're really excited to have guests this season and excited to have you both kick off uh, season two with us. So thank you for joining. All right. So um, let's take it back um, from the present day and let's let's go let's go decades into the past and talk a little bit about the history of racism in sports Um, how has racism reared its head in sports and how has it evolved over time and we can we can think about different things like um, times where you know there were no blacks in baseball right Jackie Robinson we can we can talk about that but there are Racism evolves over time. That's something that Essence and I have talked a lot about and how it adapts and it it looks different in different eras. And we are still dealing with this today in 2021. So I'd love to hear from your perspective. What has it looked like in the past and where where is it going now?
4: So, um, I mean, you look at, we'll look back, right? And I'll use Jack Johnson as an example. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight in the United States, um, now from the New York Times writing about themselves, they you know shine the light back onto how they used to portray him. Uh, one of the things that he was called was the big black, the big Negro, and uh, when he got married, the title was Johnson Weds White Girl. So, like it was very overt, and they had no, no remorse. Um, they felt no sympathy for him, and. They actually rooted against him. Um, the movie The Great White Hype was based on a lot of things that happened with Jack Johnson, where you know the country was against him, and they wanted the white race to have the title back. So they did everything they could. They they wrote bad things about him. Um, when he won, they would di- you know diminish his win. They would you know say things like, "Oh, well, so and so hurt their arm in training, and um, you know this was a great moral victory for whomever he fought that fight." And they would just do everything they could. That was just, you know, in his boxing life, outside of the ring, they were arresting him for, you know, crossing state lines with uh, with the white woman who he was dating and married. You know, he got arrested for that. He, re- he received felonies for that. Hmm. Um, they the, But they knew, you know, that he was talented. And he was very intelligent. He invented the wrench. And um, it's, I don't know if it's a myth or not, but it was called the monkey wrench because they didn't want to buy that monkey's wrench when he invented it. So, you know, like those type of things back then were were, were so prevalent, and um, we don't talk about the mental endurance that these athletes had to have. Um, and then, like, how's it evolved till now? Well, we we watch TV. You know, we see how people are portrayed. I mean, if you look at how black quarterbacks are portrayed and how things have evolved with black quarterbacks in general, it's no longer you know this. T- prototypical quarterback. It's the athletic quarterback. That's what they call them now, you know, cause all, most of the black quarterbacks can move. And what's the difference between prototypical and athletic? Well, we, we kind of know who, you know, coined the term athletic quarterbacks and it came from, from the black quarterbacks. So that's just a small sample of how things have changed and evolved.
2: Mm. Do you, do you think that that, um, term, prototypical versus athletic is kind of coded language. Like everybody kind of that's just a way of um, you know saying it without saying it.
4: Well, I would say yes because for so long there were only white quarterbacks. Mm. So to be between 6, three and six five, uh, you know 200 to 220 pounds, white quarterback who stand in the pocket and throw from, you know, wherever you can throw on the field, that that was what they were used to, you know, and then you get a guy like Warren moon who comes along and he fits that mold, but Warren moon doesn't play in the NFL. He has to play, you know, in, in Canada and he has to do every type of other thing because blacks weren't smart enough to be quarterbacks. So when Warren moon fit the prototype, he wasn't considered a prototypical quarterback. Then you get a guy like Randall Cunningham who could throw from the pocket, but he was supremely athletic. So he could run, he could do it all. And then he was an athletic quarterback. They didn't say things like that about guys like Fran Tarkenton who could run. They didn't say things about guys like that.
2: So I kind of remember, I want to say it was like 15 years ago when um, Rush Limbaugh, was talking about the black quarterback. Do you remember that? Um, he was he was kind of making a big deal about it. And I'm not a huge sports person. I at least at that time I definitely was not following football at all. That's something that came a little bit later in my life. And you know I kind of knew if I, if Limbaugh Limbaugh's making a big stir about it, it's probably something that I disagree with, right? Um, because I pretty much disagree with everything he said. For those who are not huge uh, sports people, can you kind of explain why historically quarterbacks were always white? Like, why is that? Like, I don't understand that.
4: It was very simple. They didn't think black quarterbacks were smart enough to do the job.
2: Hmm.
4: There's no way of sugarcoating it. They just didn't think they had the mental capacity to get it done.
3: Wow. So I am a big sports fan, as my husband said, on football season, literally Monday through Sunday, we are watching every level from midgets to pros, a different <laughs> football game a day, either live or uh, either in person or on TV. So it's always stuck out to me how when you get the athletic, quote unquote, quarterback, right, and which is typically, as Carl said, a black quarterback. I literally watched those quarterbacks struggle trying to transform into who the league wants them to be. Mm-hmm. And not being able to be them their best selves and run the ball and like d- scramble, do what you need to do, do what ha- do what got you there. But instead, you have people like Cam Newton that struggles every single week now. I, I watch it, I know what a great athlete he is, but because he's had to conform to what the league wants him to be a white quarterback, he struggled all throughout his career and his and his consistency isn't there. So mm-hmm. that is painful to watch to me as a sports fanatic. Pop, what do you think?
0: Um, yeah, I think, you know, kind of to the, the point of the whole question, I think racism in sports has kind of followed the same path and trajectory that racism in America has followed. It went from blacks not being included at all in, in sports um, or at positions now it's a thing of blacks not being able to get to that level of prominence that that level of leadership and seniority in, in sports organizations now so that's that's really what you see um you know if you watch I mean if you if you look at all the rules and, and things like that that come out now um, it's it's to try to, get more black people at positions of power so for the first as an athlete you know the one of the most powerful positions you can be um is a quarterback quarterback of the football team is, is kind of the extension of the of the coach so you know as carl talked about that has been and still kind of is the stigma that you see placed on every black quarterback it's like is his decision making good enough is you know is he a thinker, things like that, that you see that is coded, but it's almost not coded. You, you know exactly what they're saying because your athletic ability, being able to run doesn't equate to you not being as much of a thinker, um, but you, you see it all the time. And, you know, decision-making is always questioned with black quarterbacks. And and then from there it, it gets even worse when you look at black coaches and then black GMs and, and black presidents of teams and, and owners you know, I, I think it's followed the same type of trajectory that America has followed. It, it went from you can't even have a seat at this table or you can't have, you know, you, you can't even be near the table to now it's like you can kind of get a seat, but the seat isn't going to be, you know, as comfortable as, as your white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, so
3: that's right. You can have a seat now, but if you don't do it the way that we are telling you to do it or the way we would do it, get back out of here.
0: Yeah, and, and and it's like you can have a seat, but you can't have you can't you're not going to be the head of the table, you know. I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing is that you don't just want to be able to get a seat; you want to be able to eventually be a, the head of the table if you have the, you know, skills and capability to do that. But um, I don't think, you know, that that is coming anytime soon as far as you seeing um, black coaches and and GMS and presidents of teams uh, or owners of teams and things like that. So.
2: How do we change that? I mean, cause this is something that we see in all of the other institutions that, that essence and I have talked about, whether it's education or whether it's, you know, wealth and, and finances or it's healthcare, right? The, the people at the top typically are white men. So how do, how do we change that? in sports. And we're talking about football. It could, it could be any sport, right? It could be basketball or it could be, you know, um, hockey or whatever, right? Like, how do we, how do we change that?
4: So the hardest part about how do we change it is it's run by white people. So it would have to be changed by white people. And there have been attempts to change. Like uh, we kind of discussed, I don't, I think Pop through it out there, uh, uh, something called the Rooney rule. There was a a rule where the the league had become so black and there was no representation, right? Because that's what's important. Representation, it's hard to be something that you don't see yourself as. So there was no representation on the coaching level and on the GM level, and there's absolutely no representation on the owner level. So the Rooney Rule came in and what the Rooney Rule is in a simple form is when you're hiring for a new coach, you have to at least interview a minority, coach. It was geared to black coaches, but they included all minorities. So you have to at least interview a black coach. The only way you can get around that rule is if in an assistant coach's contract, he has um, a clause where he's going to be the next the next coach. Or if your coach is fired or retires or something during the season, the coach that replaces him is a minority. That's the only way. two ways you can get around those rules. Well, at least that's what we thought. What they do is every so often they'll pick a certain coach and this is coded, but it's a cycle where every team will interview this same one coach. And that will meet their quota of interviewing a minority coach in order for them to move to the next level. Uh, you look at Andy Reed, he has a huge coaching tree and everybody under his coaching tree has received jobs. You got John Harbaugh, you got Sean McDermott, you've got um, Matt Nagy, I'm throwing you names, right? The only one you might remember is John Harbaugh because he won the Super Bowl. But the other names, you don't really know these guys because they've never won anything big. And then you have Eric Bieniemy, who's on his staff right now doing with what a lot of the other guys I said were already doing, and he can't get a job. He's interviewed 13 times and has not received the job when he has the best offense in America with no question. So what do they do? They move the goalposts. It's no longer, you know, to be an offensive coordinator for the best offense in the league. They say, well, he wasn't calling the plays Andy Reid was. But that's the same thing that was happening when Sean McDermott was there, when Matt Nagy was there, and John Harbaugh was a special teams coach. So, you know, it's kind of like they start moving the goalposts a little bit. So the short answer of how to fix it is it can only be fixed by those in charge.
0: Yeah, and I I would agree with that, Carl. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a hard issue to fix because just like trying to fix any of the other, you know, areas in America that racism is so prevalent. I mean, you're not going to see white people want to give up their power um, anytime soon. Like that's, that's the hardest part is you're, you're trying to get white people to give up the power dynamic that they have now. And I think that's going to be, you know, difficult to to get done i think um the biggest thing that in sports um that that can be done um is the fact that the the athletes are the product you know so they can control a little bit more of, of what actually happens and they can you know come together and decide that you know we're not going to continue to allow this to happen it's going to take um you know a lot of courage it's going to take uh, some sacrifices, big sacrifices when it comes to money and things like that. The the players do have a lot more power than people in a lot of other sectors of America. You know, in, in academia, there there's not a lot of options for students or teachers to, you know, have that level of power over a university like an athlete can have over team success. So,
3: All right. Let's switch gears to personally how we have seen racism rear its head as Becky said in in our sports careers so um Carl what would you say is one personal experience that you dealt with when it comes to racism in your sports career
4: so I would say we dealt with um and it was taking a knee this year um I'm a big 49ers fan always have been and I was Big Colin Kaepernick fan, still am. So since 2016, when Colin Kaepernick started taking a knee, I did my research and I agreed with him. So I also took a knee. Well, this year was the first year I was ever suspended for taking a knee. And they protected themselves, or at least tried to, by suspending the entire staff. Um, We were accused of telling the kids to knee when there was no specific coup to do so. They're um, the vice president of the organization, and I'll mention it, Gibstown Midget Football, which is uh, right here in New Jersey. And I don't advocate for anyone to go there unless they change the regime. So uh, that's why I thought it was important to mention it. But yeah, they, the vice president was on our staff and he didn't take a knee. So if he was on the staff and he didn't take a knee, how did we create a plan to force the kids to take a knee? I was actually offended because I thought, Whatever you do during the National Anthem is your own personal opinion. Whether you stand or you take a knee, everybody has their right to do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, as long as you're not infringing upon anybody else. And I never infringed upon anyone else. So to be suspended for it was really ugly. And, you know, the newspapers were calling about it and people wanted to do a whole bunch of things to uh, shake up the, the league. So what we did was for two days, we refused to practice until they acknowledged what was going on. And uh, what they tried to do was remove the suspension as, you know, a sense of acknowledgement. Hey, you know, we, kind of made a mistake. We didn't realize what was happening and trying to make sure the kids had a good season. I didn't want to just pull everybody out and, and just walk away because it was two towns that were merged in the town that I normally coach for Paulsboro. They were willing to walk when I was suspended. So, um, you know, we're, we're talking and I'm trying to continue the season, trying to make sure the kids can have football And I'm trying my best to not call people involved in my suspension a racist because that's something really hard to prove. Right. So I'm just trying. I'm trying to judge them based on how they acted and how they violated the rules. That's not what they did with me, but that's what I was trying to do, trying to be a professional. And then what really bothered me the most is after the season, I saw screenshots of text messages where they said, you know, well, they get to come back and act like animals. So that like it it really drove me up a wall and it, it really it still bothers me right now to this day. It still bothers me that I was treated that way when all I've ever done was volunteer, try to help kids.
3: And to our our listeners that have followed us through our first season, you'll recall that during the first episode, I speak about our the protests that Carl organized and how we were bringing together two towns. And I talk about when we met at the at the center point of where the two towns come together and how the feel the feeling of wow, they showed up today because they never have done it before. Now fast forward to the example that Carl gave from this summer, and you think about are they really going, are they really going to continue this trend that we are hoping that we, we're hoping is the start of something great? Now, the first time they have an opportunity to really show, are they with us or are they against us? This is what happens. So so I guess that that feeling that we all had when we came to the the midpoint is, is something that um, means nothing.
4: Yeah, um, that coming to the midpoint, man, it was it was a very emotional experience. I'll be honest. I teared up. It was it was something like I, I never thought that. I could be a part of anything, bringing people together that would be so big and so impactful. So that is an additional reason why it hurt so much, because all I ever wanted to do was just, you know, help people make them feel better. And for to just turn the way it turned, it was it was ugly, you know. But I mean, what do you do when you try to go about things the right way and no one wants to accept that? That's that's a tough feeling because they'll choose someone like myself who will try to go about it the right way. They won't, they'll choose me because I'll go about it diplomatically because that's what they expect from us. You know, expect me to go about it like Jackie Robinson. Mm. But if you fight, you never get what you want because then you are that animal that they put in a text message.
2: Did you have any um, white support in the coaching staff or, or on the board Mm. in this experience?
4: Yes, there were two members of the board that resigned because of it. So um, they didn't say openly why they resigned. I spoke to them privately and they said why they resigned. There were also a lot of people in town that were like, well, these people aren't even from here. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're on the board and everything, but they're not from here. They don't stand for us. Hmm. So we don't want them here either. There were calls for them to resign, but no, no resignation was given. Um, I honestly believe that the lady refused to resign just to make her point, you know, it, and she was behind closed doors. She was such a manipulator and it was so nasty. She was willing to throw one of her, what she thought was her friends. under Well, what he thought was a friend, throw him under the bus and have him suspended for the entire year just for her to stay, like to make him look like the bad guy. So it was, it was ugly. I mean, there was, there was support and I had, you know, parents and players say, we'll take our kids off the team if you don't want to be here anymore. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about the kids. You know, I didn't want to make something like that about me because the life lessons that you can learn through football are greater than what, you know, than what was happening at the moment, or at least I was trying to make them, make them greater than what other people were going to turn them into.
2: Do you think that the, the kids, like, did you have a chance to really talk to them about what was going on do you think that you know by by continuing they they did learn a lesson or do you think that you know taking a harder line they might have learned something else I, I don't know I'm curious what you think
4: so I think some kids did learn a lesson and I think part of the lesson was um, I had a small conversation with them about it and um, the rest of the stat you know the rest of the coaches had a small conversation we tried to code our language a little bit because they're eight and nine Mm -hmm. and the understanding might not have been there. Uh, I do know that there were some parents who talked to their kids, you know, a lot more in depth about it. And I even offered to the organization to say, Hey, look, I'm going to take a knee for the remainder of the year. There's no question about it. If you'd like, I'll speak to any parent, any kid, any team, the board, whomever about my stance on it. And if you agree with it, great, kneel with me. And if you don't, that's fine as well. But this is what I'm doing. This is why it means something to me. And this is, you know, how I think we can move forward. Now, after all of that, they asked me to be the president. So it was it was a weird situation where of the, they of the board. Yeah, yeah, because really? the president the president resigned. So when I stepped in and I told them what I thought the overall plan for the organization should be and how it should be run and talked about the bylaws and how things are supposed to be done, they asked me to be the president.
2: And you declined? Absolutely. Mm.
4: Absolutely. We're not going to, we're not going to sit down and be, you know, I can be cordial with you to get a job done, but I don't have to be your friend. I don't have to work with you. If you didn't, if you never gave me the opportunity to present myself and you you just assumed that I was about something that to you was so bad, right? Mm -hmm. Because- think about what that message is to me kneeling to me was standing for standing against excuse me police brutality that's what it was and so you being upset that I'm taking a knee means that you're upset against police brutality against black men is that how you want to be perceived and if so I don't want anything to do with you
2: so I mean maybe I'm just looking at it from a different standpoint but wouldn't you being on the board and, and being the president of the board give you a certain level of um, influence and, and power to, to help with um, changing policies and perceptions within that organization? Or did you feel that it was just performative to, to give you that?
4: I felt like it was performative. Mm-hmm. I am also a part of Paulsboro's board, so I wasn't going to become a part of a board for a different organization. When I was already a part of a board for my own, mm. the reason that Paulsboro wasn't out there and we didn't have a season was because of COVID. So the two teams came together to have a season for the kids. So with us coming together having a season for the kids, it was, uh, you know, it, it was it was like let's keep this going. When this is all over, we all return to our homes. We kumbaya. We had a great season. Everything was good. So at that point, you know, I was I was never staying anyway. So why become the president and and work with people that didn't have my best interests at heart.
3: All right, let's move on to our next topic here. So what are your thoughts on how professional sports teams have responded following the murder of George Floyd?
0: Um, so I think, uh, especially in the NBA, uh, they've done a great job of at least bringing attention to it. Um, I think that's kind of the, the stance and the, the area that the, that the NBA is kind of occupying right now is that they're going to be, you know, the the leaders of bringing attention to this injustice um, and, and bringing attention to all kinds of injustices or, or, you know, strong social causes. So I, I think the NBA has done a really great job of, you know, being that catalyst for bringing attention to these things. Um, you know, I mean, obviously they, they haven't done, you know, anything that has, really they they haven't been able to create that change they're not not the people that are going to be able to create that change but they can you know kind of spark the the movement to to get to the people that can create the change so I think they've done a great job with it I think you know some of the, the other leagues probably can catch up to to where they are as far as um you know social justice and just be being vocal about you know their um you know their thoughts on things so
3: are there any professional teams that you think have not done as great of a job as the NBA
0: um i think you know i think the nfl really hasn't done as great of a job as the nba and i think the biggest reason that you see that is due to kind of power structure of players in the nba versus the nfl so you know you have players like lebron james like chris paul like kevin durant who you know really control the, the fate of their teams and their cities that they're they're occupying. So, you know, when, when LeBron James was in Cleveland, the, the city had an economic boom during that time. And when he left, you know, he, he took that boom with him. So those players realize that they have a lot of power and they realize that, you know, if LeBron doesn't want to play this year or if he, you know, he if he says whatever he says can, can make – A big change throughout the league where you know football is so much bigger you know you you have your quarterbacks which which are important pieces of a team but there are so many other players on a team that you know make up the the makeup of a team and um, you know players have such a smaller role on each team that you know they feel probably a little more expendable their contracts aren't as guaranteed so um, that that can also lead to it so I think you, you see players in the NFL aren't as, they aren't as outspoken about things. And, and you know, they're, they're a little bit more cautious on what, on the things that they might say um, having, you know, an impact on them. And, you know, they have kind of good reason. You see what uh, the NFL was able to do to Colin Kaepernick. You know, he, he never played another down in the NFL um, after making his stance and, you know, speaking out publicly. The NFL has a long way to go. To, to catch up to the NBA as far as social justice causes, I think.
2: Can I ask you a follow-up question there, Pop? So yeah. do you think part of the reason for that, you know, the difference you see there between the NBA and the NFL is because of the type of fan that is an NBA fan versus an NFL fan, uh, is the NFL pandering to a certain base? Do you think?
0: No, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you may have slight differences in the fan base, but I think, you know, for the most part, um the, the fan bases are, are similar. Um I think more so the NFL knows that they have more control over their players. I think they, they realize that, you know, the whoever the defensive end on you know the Philadelphia Eagles doesn't have the the level of power that um you know a star player on an NBA team might have. So I think they they realize that that they can hold that the NFL owners and and teams can hold their power um, a little stronger than what the NBA teams have been able to do. Um, I think the NBA also has just a little more strength at the top, so they're they're top, top players, um, and, you know, the guys that have the most power um, are a little bit more outspoken on things like that, so um, it it makes it easier. I I get what you're saying with your question, and I think it it is a slight – part of it but I think the bigger part of it is just the control that players um you know can have in an NBA game versus NFL um and then just the level of power that they have on a team
2: yeah when you think about you know obviously uh, there's fewer players on a basketball court than football players on a field right so there there's more um I, I guess the the power is diluted a bit on the NFL side for, from the player's standpoint.
4: So Becky, I actually um, believe that they do kind of pander to their audience. Okay. And I'm willing to say that if we pulled the numbers, there are more white season ticket holders than there are Black. And the kneeling for the national anthem showed that.
3: You don't think that would be for every sport? You don't think it would be... More white season ticket holders for every professional sport.
4: Yes, but that's a, that's a portion of it, right? So to what Pop was saying, it might be a smaller portion of it, but it's a portion of it. With the NBA, the NBA at the top, even in the ownership and stuff, they give people a little bit more flexibility. And when you look at the NBA owners, they're a little bit more diverse.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And maybe not even just culturally diverse, age diverse as well. A lot of the NFL teams have been in one family since Mm. the existence of the NFL. Mm. So, you know, if the wife of the Bears owner, I don't want to discredit her because she's she may be the owner now or her son may be the owner. I'm not 100 percent sure, but she's 98 years old. So the Bears have been in that family for that long. So whatever they believe, whatever she believed and her husband believed at the top is how the organization is ran. Hmm. You know, the te- the Texans <laughs> yeah the Texans the Texans the father of the Texans said you can't let the inmates run the prison well why you think that Sean Watson wants out because he feels like the son is trying to stop the inmates from running the prison hmm. that's why he wants out so I do think that they consider that because if they thought the black dollar was that powerful and they would lose that much from it then they would have gave cap a job in my opinion it would have gave them a job because the black community was 100% behind him.
2: So I want to skip ahead to um, another question that um, I I didn't, I'm not even sure exactly how to ask this. So I'm going to start with a story and kind of see if that leads into my question. Um, It's it's not something I experienced, but something my husband experienced um, when he was a kid. He has uh, a lot of very racist family members, um, several of whom were Klan members. And uh, he tells the story about being a boy in his uncle's truck driving somewhere. And they they saw a black man on the side of the road and his uncle pulled his truck over, hopped out and gave the guy like this big hug. And, you know, they talked for a few minutes. And, and my husband was watching, like kind of terrified because he knew what his uncle was like and was like what you know what's going to happen and then was like so shocked to see them embracing as friends when his uncle hopped back in the truck he was like who who was that and his uncle started explaining how he knew him and how they had boxed together at a gym and he goes he's not a black guy he's a boxer you know my husband nick sharing that story with me kind of was making this point that, you know, even when he was around like extremely racist family members, somehow sports superseded race, right? Like, I, I guess everyone was the same when it came to sports. Now, we obviously know that that's not the case. We've already discussed some of the the racial issues that have historically been there that we're still dealing with today. So I'm, um, that, that whole concept feels really problematic to me. Um, but I guess there are people that feel that way. I'm curious how you would respond to that. Have you seen that? What are your thoughts? Um, Carl, we'll start with you.
4: It's believed that sports are a meritocracy, as some people would like to say, right? So it's the place where you go and everybody in America can come together and be one in kumbaya. Now, being in a locker room, I only played up to high school, but I know people who have played college and professional. And- You know, I've listened to interviews and podcasts and things about people talk about locker rooms. You can't change who a person is outside the locker room versus inside the locker room. You may be able to work together as a team to achieve a common goal on the field, but you are who you are. So are there people in locker rooms with differences of opinions? Absolutely. Do they go out and, you know, strive for the same common goal? Sure. But what does that really say? It says that one of those two people is really hiding who they are in order to, you know, to 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 be an athlete. And if sports is really a meritocracy, it would show you that your your beliefs, your thoughts about this person being less than or this person being different because of their skin color and so on, are stupid. All those things make no sense. If you can work with that man for a common goal be it winning a, a baseball game or a football game or whatever the case may be, why can't you work together with that man for a common goal to make the community better, to make, um, you know, impoverished people's lives better? Why can't you work together for the same common goal for those things in locker rooms? Is there unity? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you see people embrace that may not embrace any other place else, but it, it's because somebody's putting on a facade in order to get
0: through that process.
2: Mm. Pop, what, what what are your thoughts
0: there? Um, yeah, so I, I agree with everything Carl said as well, um, but I also have a kind of different take on it that I, that I see. Um, it, it's also part of the American structure that I, I've seen, at least especially nowadays, that you see with a lot of people that have still racist views in, in my opinion, but um, there, there are a lot of races, I, I think especially white men that are... Comfortable, comfortable with black people up to a point until they get above them, you know, so you're comfortable being a teammate with uh, a black man, you're comfortable being the coach of a black man, you're comfortable, you know, being a fan that roots for for black players, but when the level gets kind of above you, so, you know, for the, the example that I'll give, I, I went to law school at Penn State and while I was there, you know, they, they had some some really good players. Saquon Barkley was uh, there, you know, was a Heisman candidate to start the season. And, you know, you probably couldn't find a person at State College that would have ever said a bad thing about him. Also there was James Franklin, who I believe is one of the, the best coaches in America um, in college football.
1: But you could find a
0: lot of fans who, you know, didn't feel that strongly about, uh, James Franklin, and you know they they held on to their love for for Joe Paterno, and um, felt like James Franklin wasn't a great decision maker, and you you know you start to hear those type of uh, things again, and, and I and I, it feels like to me that's the the kind of power balance that that you know white men don't want to lose is that you you can be you know great to a certain point, and to the point that you are below me, that's fine. But once you try to get above me, that that's no good anymore.
4: Mm. Pop, that's a great example. I remember you also telling me stories about how people viewed Mike Tomlin different as well, because yeah. he was the head of the Pittsburgh yeah. Steelers.
0: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. same, same, same uh, scenario. You know, you would you would never hear bad things about the, the the players on on the Steelers, and I was fine. You know, even from people who were fairly racist, I think you know very very racist, but when it came to Mike Tomlin, it, it wasn't the same, you know, he, he could never do good enough, even though he, he won a Super Bowl. Um, You know, he's obviously a great coach, but it, it was never going to be good enough.
4: But that's like, you know, I can root for you. I can cheer for you, but you can't date my daughter. That's right. the same right. type of thing. You know, right. in our little small area, we've experienced that, um, you know, the cheerleaders, their parents didn't want them dating the football players. And there was a certain set of cheerleaders that we're referring to. But you know they didn't want them date, dating the football players, so I, I I'm glad you brought that up, Pop, because I, I didn't you know I didn't think of that initially, but that's a great example.
0: Yeah, and I think you know the the way I would say that power structure, you, you could probably see it in, in you know regular life would just be a you know a person might be cool with their colleague who's black, you know a white man who, who's racist maybe might, might be cool with their colleague who's black, but I bet you if they had a black boss, it wouldn't you know they wouldn't have the same feelings about it. Um, So, you know, it's that level of, and I I think that's a a level of racism that is not as overt. So it makes people feel like they're not racist because, you know, I I have black friends, you hear that? I have black type of rhetoric, Um, but it's it's this feeling of you're good enough to be my equal or lesser, but definitely not, you know, above me.
2: Yeah, those are interesting thoughts there. Thank you.
3: What about black women? Let's transition to black women in sports? Are they viewed the same way as Black men? And I also want to talk about the WNBA and their role that they have played post the murder of George Floyd.
4: Man, the WNBA went far above and beyond in their representation during um, just the last couple of months, all that the WNBA has been doing to put their stamp on on social justice and, you know, moving the conversation forward. Kudos to black women again for holding <laughs> us down because the WNBA, I mean, their stance was, was huge. Like they, they did a, a huge demonstration for Breonna Taylor. They did a huge demonstration for Ahmad Arbery. I'm trying to think of the, um, the guy's name in Milwaukee who was shot. Uh, I can't think of it offhand. They did a huge, de- I mean, the WNBA one day came into the game, with holes in their t-shirt from where the person was shot. And each person had a letter written on their shirt for who the person shot was. I forgive me for not re- remembering the name. That was, that was their, their stance. They just went so hard for it. And then they, they continued to push forward because they, um, what's her name? Uh, Kelly Loeffler. Kelly Loeffler was a Senator of Georgia and, you know, she gave her opinion on how things are supposed to go in the W the players on the team, we're not with it. They they thought she was they thought she was racist. And I think she proved them right. But they did everything they can, they, they everything they could to help get her out of office. So, you know, they they partnered with Stacey Abrams and putting putting the initiatives out to get people out to vote. They got her out of the ownership group, of a team like the WNBA, if I could give anybody credit and want to shout them out for how things have changed since George Floyd was murdered was the WNBA. They really, really went above and beyond on all levels.
2: Yeah, so I one of the things I was thinking about when it came to to this question is um just the way that black women in sports have been so mistreated. I I rem- I was a huge figure skating fan back in the 90s when um you know, we were the US was winning gold and I remember there was a French figure skater named surya Bonaly, she was the only black figure skater at the olympics and she was an incredible skater and she always they let her get so far but she you know she would she'd get that silver medal she'd get that silver medal but never gold right and she could do things nobody could do on the ice and she was you know the judges and and this is something that's always been levied against um Figure skating in particular is very elitist, right? It's very clickish. Um, but she was assigned to, you know, not fitting in, or she's so athletic, which was kind of like, I think, coded language for more masculine and not so like graceful and petite as you know the the Russians or the the Japanese or whatever. Um, and I just, I, you know, I, I I've seen her subsequently in in interviews talk about it and and how how hard that was to sort of like essentially your entire career is restricted by this completely subjective system. Like objectively, she was doing um, technical skills that nobody could do and they weren't giving her the credit for it. Um, So that's just one example. But I mean, Serena Williams, right? Top of her sport for for so long, like an incredible athlete who, you know, has been called things like an ape and a gorilla. I mean, just disgusting language. Um, You know, Essence and I talked last season about um, what happened with the Rutgers women's basketball team um, back in like I think it was oh seven, you know, with Don Imus calling them nappy headed hoes, right? Like there's kind of like example after example. And, you know, are, do you do you think that women in sports are treat like black women in sports are treated different than black men? Or does it just take on a different form um, because they're also women? There's kind of that intersectional issue of being both a woman and a person of color.
0: Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's part of the intersectionality of just being both a woman and you know a a, a black woman. Um, and to to your point, Becky, um, you know you were you were talking about the figure skater. I didn't know about that, but I mean you see it the same now with uh, Simone Biles and gymnastics. Um, so that's always been you know an issue that um, black women have had to deal with in sports. So yeah, I, I think it's. Part, partly just due to the intersectionality of it. Um, you know, the fact that they're women and the power structure that exists in, in that part of it, but then, you know, the fact that they're black women and, and have uh, some abilities that, you know, you, you won't see with some of their white counterparts um, just really adds to it.
4: I think that, you know, I agree with you guys. I think women have it, black women have it doubly as hard in sports uh, because of the intersectionality. Now, I'm going to give you an example of Serena Williams versus Maria Sharapova. Serena Williams, like you said, was, you know, said she looked too manly. She looked like an ape, You know, all these other things about her looks and so on and so forth. She was 20 and three against Maria Sharapova. And Maria Sharapova was getting all the publicity that Serena couldn't get because she was a tall blonde that they liked to look at. And she was good at tennis. Their career earnings are Serena comes in at 350 and Maria Sharapova comes in around 325 and their careers were not even remotely close. Mm-hmm. Serena is arguably one of the greatest athletes to ever walk the earth and Maria Sharapova was right there with her because she was a tall, cute, blonde girl.
2: Isn't that the same with Anna Kornikova? She got all that attention and her as well. she, yeah. she could barely hit the tennis ball. I mean, it was ridiculous.
4: Yeah. Anna Kornikova as well. Yep.
3: All right. One of the things that I admire about the, the two men that we have the privilege of having on our show today is their their hearts and their hard work. And when those two things come together with these two men, it, it is a powerful combination. And I want to give them the opportunity to talk about a business that they started together.
4: So I'll, I'll let Pop introduce this because um, I believe he is SML. So I'll let him introduce this first.
0: Yeah, so um, last year, two years ago now, um, we started up SML Sports. as a FIBA-certified agency, um, hoping to get our NBA license here soon. Uh, we currently have five uh, FIBA clients, uh, two of them with professional contracts right now, uh, one in Germany and, and one in Portugal, so it's been a great experience, um, you know, and, and really as it grows, it's going to, to really um, allow me and Carl to both, you know, combine our love for sports, but with our love for helping people, you know, you, you really get a chance to watch these, you know, young men and, and, and ho- hopefully one day get women as well, uh, career build and grow and, and, you know, help them as people along with helping them, uh, you know, just as professional athletes. So it's, it's been a, really exciting journey so far. Um, And, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes.
4: Yeah. um, I want to thank Pop for allowing me to join him on this journey. Uh, SML are his initials. So, um, you know, he had this idea and that's all he's ever talked about since he was a kid, wanting to be an agent and uh, just his, his diligence and his hard work to the process is admirable. Um, The athletes that we have, uh, you know, we, we watch a lot of guys play and we talk and argue until three o'clock in the morning about sports all the time. My wife is shaking her head right now because we, we really love what we do. And I think the thing that, you know, kind of makes us who we are is that we genuinely care about the athletes that we have. I'm not saying there aren't agents who do, but like we genuinely care about the athletes. Like I, I want to know who you are, who your parent, like who your support system is, right? Because it may not be your parents, maybe your wife, You know, it may be your uncle. I mean, you know, we don't know anyone's situation. And we want to see our athletes do well on the court, but we also want them to be like great people in in the world and use sports to be uh, a catalyst for them to create the rest of their lives and create something that they can, you know, pass on generationally, whether it be wealth, whether it be knowledge, uh, whatever the case may be, whether it be a craft, skill set, Whatever it is, we just want to be able to be a good support system for somebody, help them uh, develop their career and, and, and build a good name for ourselves. Because I genuinely believe the only thing you really have, you know, that you'll leave behind is your legacy. So if we can put ourselves out there, represent these guys well, pick guys who are going to perform on the best levels and uh, just leave a good name for ourselves. Uh, you know, that's 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 what I, I I would really like for us to do.
2: Well, thank you guys for joining us. Um, really appreciate your insights and just sharing your experiences. Um, I think it's been really eye-opening, so, so thank you for that.
4: Thank you for having us. Uh, this was definitely different than I anticipated initially, <laughs> but I'm, I'm very thankful for being on. I've listened to you guys record, you ladies, excuse me, record a number of different sessions Um, I I've watched the, the editing process and all those things. So I know everything that goes into it. So I want to give you kudos. Um, he
3: thought our jobs were easy. (laughs) I'm
4: not going to say I can do your job, but I think, I, (laughs) I think I could be a guest a little bit more often if you'd like me to. Um, but yeah, no, great, great, great job. Uh, I know all the work that goes in behind the scenes. So I, I give you, um, the, the most respect that I could and um you know just to anybody listening share 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 yes. you know share 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 because this is all from literally from their heart you know this was born out of a conversation about how to make things better and how to have tough conversations and how to just try to do nothing but you know make yourself better make others better and raise better children so i i know that from the inside out so i, I think everybody on on the on here and everybody listening just you know, for all the support.
0: Yeah, and I just want to say thank you for having me as well. It was a great conversation. Um, you know, some, some really interesting topics got brought up today. So, you know, hopefully everyone is listening and is able to kind of gain some insight on some things and, um, you know, learn something from this. So, uh, yeah, thank you, guys Thank you, ladies, again, uh, for, for having me today.
3: Thank you for listening to The Heart of the Matter in Black and White. Please join us next time when we will be discussing racism in the justice system.
1: Yeah. One take. Oh, that's
3: the one. I love you, mommy.
1: If these walls could talk, they'd tell you about my life. Let's get into the heart of the matter in black and white. No second chances, no opportunities in sight. Cause dreams of escaping is boosting my appetite. with the American dream. White picket fences, couple kids, couple bands, it's the American scheme. If you're from where I'm from, and they be burying teens and burying dreams, really some embarrassing things. Institutional change, generational things, systematic oppression, generational pain. Welcome to the show where we break it down for humane, cause if we don't talk about it, then these things will never change. You claim to be an ally, you're really feeling us. But is equality worth that privilege you giving up? Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself. Is my equality worth that privilege you've given up?